1: And by EasternChristianMedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's EasternChristianMedia.com.
0: Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host. And as usual, another fascinating week coming up in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, especially those of you who are on the Gregorian calendar. We have tomorrow, Monday, September 23rd, the conception of St. John the Baptist. Later in the week, we have the passing of John the Apostle, an evangelist. Then we have St. Chariton on Saturday, the Venerable Confessor. Now, these are not major holidays, but they are significant. On the calendar, they're in bold letters. See, there's red and there's bold black. There's different variations, <laughs> depending upon, of course, the solemnity of the feast. But the first one, the conception of St. John the Baptist, is interesting in the fact that seldom, if ever in the church, do we commemorate the birth or conception of anybody. In fact, we only do so for Christ, the Virgin Mary, and St. John the Baptist, because we say in the liturgical prayers that John was born without sin. So his conception and his birth are significant, as well as, of course, his death. And of course, the Byzantine church, we add to that not one, not two, but three findings of his head. We have several findings of the head of St. John the Baptist. So we celebrate his conception, which, of course, was significant. We read about that in the scriptures where his father was told about this, but he didn't believe it at first, so he was rendered mute. And eventually, of course, he believed and said, the boy's name will be John. His father, Zacharias, had a different idea in mind, but the angel came to him, and told him differently. Eventually he accepted it. So John's conception, his whole coming into being, is significant. And he's the only one other than the Virgin Mary and Christ himself. In fact, the three of them will often appear on the top of an icon screen, in the top tier. Many icon screens have several layers or tiers. And the very top tier, usually in the middle, kind of in a separate, sort of almost like triptych style, is what we call the deicis, and that involves Jesus Christ enthroned on his throne, in heavenly throne. And he's flanked on either side by the Virgin Mary and St. John the Baptist. So the three of them often go together in iconography. Certainly they do in the sense that we celebrate their feasts, their births, their lives, and their deaths. And in the case of John the Baptist, as I mentioned, the first, second, and third finding of his head. So as always, the weeks are eventful. They're very exciting for me, actually. I wake up in the morning, one of the first things I do is I check the liturgical calendar to see who my little buddy is that day. That's how I consider these saints, who I'm going to think about, who I'm going to pray to, who's going to be at my side, or I'm going to ask to be at my side for that day. Then I read the story of that saint or the event from the book called the Synaxarion, which comes in either several volumes or one big volume. And it's something I think every family should have, certainly every Eastern Christian family should have. Because it has not only the lives of the saints, the events of their lives, the story of their lives, and many times, of course, their martyrdoms, but also it has some wonderful meditations and even homilies in there and also scripture references. So the Synaxarian, it's a great book every family should have, and I recommend families sitting around at least for one meal a day, which I know today is actually difficult, regrettably. But if they can have a discipline in their homes to sit around for at least one meal a day and read from the Scripture a little bit, just, you know, it doesn't take a lot, a little bit from the Scripture and from the Synaxarian of the day, I think that families, households would find a lot of things would change for them for the better. It's just part of that domestic church idea, which you hear about sometimes, but originally with St. John Chrysostom, a Byzantine saint back in the 4th century, the domestic church. In other words, things that we experience in church like hearing and learning about the saints and praying to them and hearing the scriptures, we take into our homes. We make that part of our household discipline, our household pattern and rhythm. And it really does beautiful things for a household. It really keeps it centered. And if it can happen, especially around one common meal a day, preferably a supper time, it's even that much more of a gift, of a grace. Speaking of coming together, I want to talk to you about an experience I had recently That was such a witness of so much of what I talk about in this program, of the mystery of Eastern Christian spirituality, only this is in a specifically lived event. It was, actually, an experience of a wedding. It was a wedding of a seminarian. His name was Andrew. You see, in some of the Eastern Catholic churches, there is still the tradition of ordaining married men to the priesthood. Now, this tradition has remained unbroken for centuries, since the time of Christ and the apostles, in the countries of origin for the Eastern churches, which would be Central Europe, Eastern Europe, Russia, the Middle East, those areas, especially in the Byzantine churches. Now, when that tradition came to the West... In other words, when the Byzantine churches migrated to the West, such as North America, the presence of Mary clergy created a bit of a problem because it was not understood by the well-established Latin Rite churches. So to make a long story short, the practice of Mary clergy basically ended in the Western world for many, many decades. But under Pope John Paul II, the Eastern Catholic bishops in North America, we're allowed once again to ordain married men to the priesthood. Now, it's very important that we word this correctly. Sometimes it's said, oh, in the Byzantine churches, priests can get married. No, married men can become priests. It's very important to make that distinction. Priests never get married. A married man becomes a priest. So, under John Paul II, this tradition was restored once again to the bishops in North America. However, under certain kinds of restrictions, or prescriptions. In other words, if a Byzantine bishop, since his mine, wants to ordain a man to the priesthood who is married, he submits that case to Rome. And then Rome looks at it and then gives our bishops the permission, the okay. That's how it works. That's how it was set up. That's the process of kind of re-entering or reintroducing this custom of married clergy in North America, because we've been away from it for a long, long time. So it's not something you just jump back into. So that's the formula currently between Rome and the Eastern churches in North America. So Seminarian Andrew, and I mentioned that he is seminarian, he does aspire to the priesthood. And our bishop, Bishop John Kudrick, the of Parma, has in fact submitted his case to Rome. And we, of course, will wait that discussion between Rome and my bishop. But in the meantime, seminarian Andrew has been studying for the priesthood, studying theology. He'll be going on to advanced degrees, and he's been studying in Rome, and he met his fiance in Rome, who is also, her name is Laura, is also a very devout Christian woman, Catholic woman, and she's from Montreal, Canada. So the two of them decided to get married, and I had the honor of doing their marriage preparation, as Seminary Andrew said at his wedding, I gave them the industrial strength Marriage preparation. <laughs> well, I felt I had to work with them very closely, especially if he aspires to be a married priest, because that will put a lot of responsibility upon both of them and certainly upon the wife to understand what that life is like. So I wanted to make sure they were well prepared in their marriage. So, Seminary Andrew appreciated that. That was his sense of humor, great sense of humor, said, I gave them industrial strength pre cana I was honored to do so and honored to be invited and present at their wedding. But this wedding was something. Extraordinary, and that's why I bring it up. It's an extraordinary witness. First of all, the ceremony itself. The ceremony itself was the Byzantine ritual of marriage, and it was done at a Ukrainian Byzantine Catholic Church, Saint Basil the Great, in Montreal. They were kind enough to allow us to use their church. Beautiful church, and a choir was put together by Father Roman Galadza, who was the brother of Father Peter Galadza, who you hear on Live of the East during the little meditations for the Sheptitsky Institute. So Father Roman put together a wonderful little choir and the responses for the marriage ritual, which we also call the ritual of crowning, were led by this choir, and the people joined in, and it was absolutely beautiful. But what was extraordinary about this, even about the reception, which I'll get to later, what was extraordinary about this wedding ceremony is a degree of heartfelt emotion, but something even beyond emotion. The bride and the groom, in particular the bride, And along with them, the bishop, Bishop John Kudrick, my bishop, he actually performed the wedding ceremony for his seminarian, Andrew, and of course, his wife, Laura. The degree of emotion, and I mean emotion, meaning from the heart, the soul, more than just emotion as we think of it, the intensity of the feeling of this wedding was something really quite extraordinary. The groom was just absolutely beaming beaming beyond anything I could ever have imagined in a way that ever saw him beam before. And of course, the bride was naturally very exuberant as well. The bishop was very moved during the ceremony. There were many tears shared between the bride, the groom, and the bishop, along with others as well. I mean, genuine tears, tears coming from a very special place, not just emotion. I mean, tears always accompany all weddings, but these tears were something different, and they're a witness to a lot of things. And I'm going to explain what some of those things are when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East.
1: Light of the East's mission is Christianity's reunion, And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep light of the East's illumination bright. Truth. It's not about how you feel. And now, a Sheptitsky Institute Minute with Father Peter Galadza. In 1935, Archbishop Andrei Sheptitsky wrote the following about truth and our attitudes towards faith. He wrote, Many believing Christians are sometimes wrong because they think that authentic religion is more of a feeling than truth itself. Faith is an act of reason and not a blind assent to just anything whatsoever. And faith is certainly not just one's private experience. Faith compels one to believe, but it compels one because the mind itself recognizes that believing is a reasonable and necessary act and that not believing would be a sin against God and truth. To learn about degree programs in Eastern Christian Studies, visit sheptitskyinstitute.ca That's s-h-e-p-t-y-t-s-k-y-institute.ca
0: You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. People often ask me, what is the difference between an Eastern Catholic and a Latin Rite Catholic? Hello, I'm Father Thomas J. Loya with an Eastern Christian Moment. The difference between Eastern Catholicism and Roman or Western Catholicism is not a difference in belief, nor is it just a matter of different customs and traditions. Rather, it is a difference of theological emphasis, of seeing the same thing but from different vantage points, according to the respective genius of both lungs of the Church. For instance, In Western spirituality, there is an emphasis of man striving towards God and how the accomplishments of man point to the greatness of God. This emphasis became expressed in the tall verticality of Gothic church architecture and in works of famous artists and composers. In the East, the starting point is God's transcendence, which becomes imminent and incarnate. This emphasis became expressed in the domes, arches, and iconography of the Eastern churches. East and West may differ in emphasis. They both arrive at the same place of the one true God. To find out more about the Eastern Log of the Church, go to EasternChristianMedia.com. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host. And we were talking about a wedding. Yes, a wedding of a seminarian. Because again, in many of the Eastern churches, not all, but most of them, married men can become priests. So we have seminarians who may be studying for the priesthood, but will some of them will choose or be called to marriage and then later on be ordained. And I'm talking about the marriage of one of our seminarians and about the tears of this wedding. There was something quite extraordinary coming from a different or deeper kind of place than tears that normally accompany most weddings. And this is the reason why. And it's one of those things where, I hate to use a cliche, but wish you could have been there because it really was extraordinary. These tears were coming from a place where people of faith converge. It's a place where they truly understand and know the love of Christ and the meaning of the sacrament of marriage, the mystery of marriage. And so the people involved in it were moved in their soul, in their heart. It wasn't just sentimental tears. It wasn't just emotion superficially. This was people being touched in their soul, moved the deepest part of them at the mystery that they were being immersed in, knowing this mystery well. Because, of course, as a seminarian, he studied the theology, the sacramentality, the mystery of marriage, as did his wife, and, of course, the bishop knowing it himself. And the people there, for the most part, The vast majority were believers, devout Catholics, East and West. And there were about 16 priests, about a half a dozen nuns, and as seminarians, and, of course, a bishop. Now, if you put all that together, you put a whole bunch of committed celibates, vowed religious, together with married couples who understand the sacramentality of marriage. You put that all together, and you end up with a magic ingredient that produces an incredible, moving experience of the mystery of marriage. And it was so apparent, so real for this particular wedding of Seminary Andrew and his wife, Laura, and for Bishop John as well. And I know that Bishop John's tears were the tears that witnessed to something else that is important for us to understand. It's a point that I often make about the relationship of salivacy to marriage and how the two of them, especially in the Eastern churches, are interdependent two sides of the same coin, two ways to be spouse and parent. That's right. Spouse and parent, whether a married couple, married sacramentally through the mystery of marriage as we know it, or even a celibate, vowed religious, a priest or bishop. Both of them know spousalhood and parenthood, their own respective ways. And for the bishop, it must have been very moving for him. I know it was, it was obvious. To be performing the wedding ceremony of a young man that for him would have been like a spiritual son. Now, let's face it, when a seminary is going through formation, he has a very unique relationship with his bishop, and the bishop is contributing towards and watching the development of this young man as he grows into a priest. In other words, it's almost like watching his own son, but in a mystical spiritual way. And what an experience for that bishop to not only watch his son grow in his theology, his spirituality, towards ultimately priesthood, but to actually perform this great moment in his spiritual son's life, that moment being his marriage, his wedding. There is a very unique relationship that goes on between a bishop and a priest, and certainly between a bishop and a seminarian. And it truly is, and I can speak from experience, it truly is, through it all, a father-son relationship that must have been very, very real. Bishop John into seminary and Andrew during that wedding ceremony. And thus, the tears, the unique tears from a deep and holy place. And when you bring vowed religious together, along with committed married people, people of faith, all of them, as I mentioned, we converge at the one point in the love of Christ. And that love moves you to tears. We could all appreciate what this event really was. And let me tell you, in all honesty, as a priest, that's a rarity. Because so oftentimes we priests, well, sometimes we say we, and I'll put this in quotes, I don't really mean it, but as a matter of speaking, we we hate weddings as priests and pastors because we love the sacrament of matrimony. We love the mystery of matrimony so much that it pains us to have to work so often with so many people who don't get it. And on those rare occasions, when you experience a wedding with a couple who does get it, especially this couple who really gets it. Believe me, it is an experience that moves a priest and a bishop and all who are present to tears that come from a very special place. Now, after the ceremony, what we call the rite of crowning or the ritual of crowning, the reason is is because crowns are used as a very significant symbol in the Byzantine wedding ceremony. They have lots of meanings to them. So we call it the ritual of crowning because it's such a prominent symbol. Well, afterwards, of course, later on was the wedding reception. Now, the wedding receptions are things that I, as a priest, don't go too often. If I go, I kind of don't, don't stay that long. I have to admit I feel like a bit of a fifth wheel. Nothing against wedding receptions. It's just that it's just something about them that, uh, for me, I feel a little bit out of place. I mean, I feel very honored that the couple invites me. I will come oftentimes out of respect and to honor their requests, but basically it's just not my place. But this particular reception was different. This reception was very much an extension of the joy, the exuberance of the wedding ceremony. And believe me, it was a rockin' wedding reception. By that I don't mean in any kind of negative way. I mean it was exuberant. It was exuberant of a nature that it was, I would say, was. If not, it was certainly borderline supernatural. It had an energy and a joy that just caught everybody up into it in a way that I have never experienced before, never seen before. It was truly something, something extraordinary. And I knew, as I was observing this, why that was. And It was such a witness as why I am sharing it with you. Because it was the reality, once again, of this principle of when people of faith come together, of real faith, people who have given their lives over as a gift, they have made that choice of vocation. A wedding reception filled with priests, nuns, seminarians, and a bishop. In other words, a wedding reception filled with celibates, with vowed religious, becomes one of the most exuberant, ecstatic wedding receptions you would ever, ever Experience and imagine. Certainly, it was my greatest experience of a wedding of my whole life, actually, of any, most any celebration, in fact. And I knew that such a celebration that was so extraordinary had to come from some place extraordinary, and that place was that meeting point of all gathered there, of Christ and the immersion into Christ through a true understanding of the mystery of marriage. I couldn't help bringing to mind the words of one of my favorite authors, G.K. Chesterton, who I think is a modern-day mystic, and I found out happily that there is a cause for his canonization, which I am happy about. He's writing in his book, Orthodoxy, which is a great book. You should read it, read it over and over again, about this idea that wherever priests are or nuns and so on, there's always a kind of a, like a damper on things. Like they can't really celebrate or party or they don't let us have fun. And he's answering that, which is oftentimes shared or thought of by the secular world. And he says, the view that priests darken and bitter the world, there is this view, he says, I look at the world and simply discover that they don't. Those countries in Europe that are still influenced by priests are exactly the countries where there's still singing and dancing and colored dresses and art in the open air. Catholic doctrine and discipline may be walls, but they are the walls of a playground. Christianity is the only frame that has preserved the pleasure of paganism. The strongest argument for the divine grace is simply its ungraciousness. The unpopular parts of Christianity turn out, when examined, to be the very props of the people. The outer ring of Christianity is a rigid guard of ethical abnegations and professional priests, but inside that inhuman guard you will find the old human life dancing like children and drinking wine like men. For Christianity is the only frame for pagan freedom. But in the modern philosophy, the case is opposite. It is its outer ring that is obviously artistic and emancipated. Its despair is within. Where there was no despair within the people at this wedding, from within came that love and that joy of Christ, that shared joy of Christ and a true understanding of the mystery of the sacrament of matrimony. I thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loyal on Light of the East.
1: Light of the East's mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Would you like to hear this Light of the East program again? Welcome to Light of the East on Father Thomas Loya. Or hear Father Loya's companion program, A Body of Truth. Just visit the radio page at ByzantineCatholic.com that's byzantinecatholic.com or hear it, again hear it again hear it again hear it again for the first time light of the east is produced by adc media